Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm Greg Boyd, uh, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's really, I'm really glad that you have decided to join us here this morning, or whenever you're listening to us. I'm glad that you're a part of this moment. Um, you should see we got, we got uh, a new carpet here. Uh, you'll see it in May 2nd if you come to that service. It really looks nice. It really looks nice in here. I think you're going to enjoy coming back. Two weeks. Let's see. We'll keep streamlining, and you can participate that way, whatever you're comfortable with. But uh, it'll be fun to have more than three people listening in, in, in the house listening to a sermon. Although I'm kind of getting used to it. It's kind of, I'll probably have to get reacclimated to preaching to a crowd after this. It's been so long. Okay, so this morning is uh, a little bit weird. It's going to be a little bit odd. Because um, here's the thing. I, I, the plan was to preach, continue on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, and we'll get to that a little bit. Uh, but there's two preliminary words that I was asked to speak on. Um, and those two preliminary words sort of took on a life of their own as I was kind of preparing to share them and, and became sort of sermons of, on their own. Um, and, and so the, the, the first preliminary word is on race, and the second preliminary word is on sex. So do I have your attention? <laughs> the thing is, is that, that, that these two announcements got uh, you know, beefy and, and now there's no time for the sermon. <laughs> so I'm not going to get to my sermon today. I'm going to do, actually you're getting two sermons this morning, two for the price of one, and neither of them are what I was supposed to preach on. <laughs> so that's life, that's how it goes. But these two preliminary words I think are extremely important. Extremely important. In fact, I'd like to pray. Father... Um, a lot of pain, just a lot of pain. A lot of anger, a lot of confusion. Quiet our hearts here this moment as we can here together think through the kingdom. I pray healing for those who need healing, hope for those who need hope, encouragement for those who need encouragement. Conviction for those who need conviction. Lord, minister to your people as we're here in this situation. And now, Lord, anoint this word. Use it to solidify us, to grow us in the direction of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the last, this last year, you guys know, ever since George Floyd was killed, uh, we have been talking a lot about race issues and uh, wrestling with uh, how, how do we as Anabaptists engage the culture, impact the culture. In fact, we have kind of, it's not sort of official, we've been wrestling with this all year, but we have now a, 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 a team of people, a very diverse team that we're tentatively calling uh, the Civic Engagement Task Force um, to really, uh, you know, help us move forward on this. Uh, become more active in this. Uh, then they're asking the questions, how do we as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, who are here to represent a different kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world, um, but how do we use the say-so that our culture gives us? See, we're in a, in a missionary context here, but a missionary context where they say, hey, you, you get to have a say in what goes on in government and politics and in the rest. Uh, and so the question is, how do we use our say-so in a kingdom way? Uh, to help those who are most vulnerable, uh, those who are oppressed, those who are neglected, those who are marginalized. Uh, how do we use our say-so 
to push back against racism and uh, to promote social justice. And how do we do that in a way that where we don't get caught up in the partisan politics and we don't get caught up in the culture wars, the toxic culture war that's dividing the country? Because see, the kingdom of God is not about your politics. It's not about whether you're Democrat or Republican or socialist or communist or whatever, libertarian. Um, it, it's, it, it's about loving the Lord like your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. That, that, that's the kingdom right there. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Uh, that, 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 that's our call. Uh, the question is, how do we do that in a way that, that is not compromising our kingdom quality, but also is not afraid of weighing in on tough issues? So this Civic Engagement Task Force, I, I'll just give you a little heads up on this. Uh, we're looking at, uh, uh, they want to be providing the congregation uh, with, with uh, uh, action steps that we can take, with partnerships we can get involved in as we're working against racism and, and, and for social justice. Uh, classes, we can take seminars that are available. It, it's to resource this body that we have here, the Woodland Hills, to be all that we can be for the kingdom and impacting our culture. So we, we've, I've been talking with this, this civic engagement task force and, and we've been asking the question, what is a kingdom way, a, 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 an appropriate kingdom response in this moment right here that we find ourselves here in Minnesota? You folks who are tuning in from out of other places, apply it as, 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 you, as you will. But here in Minnesota, where this Derek Shelvin trial is taking place, there's a lot of pain and we're asking, well, how should we respond to this? And as we're wrestling with that question, how do we respond to... Uh, this Derek Chauvin trial and all the tension that's there and the anger that is, is, is here. It's like a powder keg around here. Well, as you know, Dante Wright, 13 or 20-year-old African-American father, was shot and killed. And Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old Latino boy, was shot and killed. And e e in each of these cases, is different. But see, each, each of those killings take on extra gravitas in light of the overall context we find ourselves in with this Derek Chauvin trial. They take on more importance. And see, and, and, and George Floyd's killing t t takes on more gravitas, more importance, in light of all that preceded him. Philando Castile. And Philando Castile's killing took on more gravitas because of Travis Jordan, Jamar Clark, and, and the list goes on. And all those cases are different. I'm not trying to say these are all the same. You can have different opinions about how justified or unjustified the police were, but see, the cumulative effect of all this, and it's not just Minnesota, then you've run out to the nation and all that's gone on in the last 10 years, and it's, it, it, it can't be overwhelming to people. Uh, it, it could drive some people into despair, uh, losing hope, being very, very discouraged. Are things ever going to change? And there's a lot of tension. How's this trial going to go? So what would be a good kingdom response to this situation which we find ourselves in? And the civic engagement team thought, the appropriate response right now in this moment is for the church to lament. Up until this last year, we never talked about lamenting as a congregation. And now we've been talked about it several times. Lament is, is a, a very biblical form of prayer. Uh, it's a messy form of prayer. Uh, you find a third of the Psalms are laments. And you, and you find laments all throughout the Bible. It's just about getting real with, with, with what you're feeling. Real with your pain and, and, and expressing it to God. It's about letting the pain of others in on your life. To lament the whole situation we find ourselves. To lament the brokenness of this culture that we're stationed here as missionaries in. 
So whatever opinions you have about the particular cases that you might think of, as the people of God, we are called to just lament the brokenness of the situation, the pain of the situation, the ungodliness of the situation, the injustice of the situation. Whatever opinions you might have about particular cases, what's absolutely essential for the people of God, we're called to follow Jesus, who is incarnational. He enters into, he entered into our humanity, then entered into our sin, and then entered into our God-forsaken curse that goes along with sin. He enters into it. Well, we're called to do that and, and, and to empathize. And whatever your opinions are about the particular cases, it's especially important that we empathize across racial lines. Because this is where many people find it most challenging to be empathetic. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show that we naturally empathize more with people who are like us, who look like us, share our culture and all that, than we do with people who are very different from us. But see, that's all the more reason why the people of God, we're not supposed to default to what comes natural in the culture. We're called to follow Jesus and to be incarnational, which means to empathize, to let it in on the inside. They're called to manifest the one new humanity for which Jesus died. And that's what empathy is all about. We're, we are one race here. We're one people. Jesus died to tear down all the walls that divide human beings. According to, you know, their class and economy or achievements or whatever. All the categories by which the culture rates people, judges people, evaluates people, assigns people's positions, creates a hierarchy. All of that's to be done away with. In the body of Christ and in the way that we look at the world. Paul says, he's convinced that if one died for all, therefore all have died. This is, the cross was an all-inclusive thing. It includes everybody. And so it's vital that we don't buy into the divisions of the culture and don't let our empathy be limited by the divisions of the culture, but rather enter into this. We lament the pain of the situation. Now, laments can be spoken, they can be sung, they can be enacted, but they can also be silent. We read this in Lamentations. Lamentations, by the way, is, the whole book is one big lament. Uh, Babylon had just ransacked Judah, and the whole thing was one big lament. But we read this in, in Lamentations 2, verses 10. It says that in light of how Babylon has ransacked uh, 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 Zion, and, uh, it was a mess. People were deported. It says that the elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. What you have here is an image of silence. People sitting, bowing their heads to the ground, and they're lamenting. They're in mourning. And so the, the uh, Civic Engagement Task Force team thought it would be good for us to do that. To spend two minutes just sitting in the presence of God, giving ourselves permission to feel what we feel, being honest with that, and choosing to let the pain of others in on this, in our life, the pain of this whole situation that we're in, to feel all of that. And I ask the question, what if Dante Wright was your son or your brother? What if Adam Toledo was, was your son or your brother? What if George Floyd was your father or your uncle? Or, to enter into that and feel that pain. And then offer that to God. Just, here's where you're at. It's about being real before God. Are you tired? Then be tired. Are you frustrated? Be frustrated. Are you angry? Then say you're angry. Are you confused? Then say you're confused. Worried, fearful. Be what you are before God. Lament that. Uh, it, it can feel uncomfortable. Two minutes of silence is a long, long period of silence. But see, laments 
aren't supposed to make us comfortable. Uh, we lament because we're not comfortable. We lament because things are broken. And so our, we're just going to sit in the mess, sit in the brokenness, sit in the pain, the injustice, with all the emotions that it, it, that it evokes. Be real before God. Uh, I'll give it on the clock so you don't have to worry about this. You may at one point think, gosh, this is going on forever and ever. But I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that and I'll close with a little prayer. But can we right now focus our minds and focus our hearts on just the situation in which we find ourselves and, uh, and, 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 and lament that situation? Just feel it and offer it to God. Be with us, Lord, during this time of silence. Amen. Lord, we offer up to you the pain of this situation. Ah, we pray for the families of those who have lost loved ones. And we pray, God, that you, you're the comforter and uh, comfort those who need comfort, all of us who need comfort, so we're not overwhelmed by it but also move us to action, to do what we can do to make a difference. Help us to be the, uh, an authentic people who genuinely are incarnational, who enter in. We carry these burdens together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that was the first. I don't think we've ever done that. Two minutes of silence in the church service. Okay. That was sermon number one. Uh, are you ready for sermon number two? Uh, to, to, to start the second sermon here, I, I, I want to read the passage that I'll actually, 
won't be preaching John much today, but it introduces the topic, and it, kind of, it will set up for next week. So here's what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, you've heard that, heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. A lot could be said about that and a lot will be said about that uh, passage, but not so much this morning. Because there's a preliminary word that I want to say about this passage and about sex in general. If you're going to talk about sex... uh, You've got to say something, given where the culture's at, where the church is at, about, I'll put it like this, we are asked with increasing frequency, at least that's my impression, we're asked with increasing frequency, Uh, people ask, how does the Bible's covenantal understanding of marriage and sex relate to people who identify as LGBTQ, and now they put a plus on it because there's other... uh, uh, acronyms that, 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 that follow. So it's just an all-inclusive thing. But how does the biblical teaching on marriage and sex relate to people who are LGBTQ+. Uh, Paul Eddy, for the last oh, 10, 12 years, I guess, he's been researching sex and, and uh, he's planning on writing this definitive book on, on a Christian ethic. He's already published some things on this. He's kind of a specialist on this. And, and so we recently we, we've, uh, he's been leading our staff and the board on discussions and some prayer around LGBTQ issues as well as other uh, issues uh, pertaining to sex. It's really been a, a, a fruitful time, an eye-opening time. But we're processing this. I mean, some people have, have wondered, you know, how come you know, we haven't preached on this from the pulpit? Uh, in fact, twice I've had people say, are, are you afraid of addressing this issue? I thought Woodland Hills was courageous and just spoke out on things. And, and, and here you're, it seems like you're skirting the issue. Well, we're not skirting the issue. We've been studying it quite intensely and discussing it, pray, praying about it. Uh, it's very much like an Acts 15 uh, uh, thing where, you know, the, the, they were wondering, how, how, how are Jews and Gentiles supposed to get along? What requirements should we require of the Gentiles uh, if they're going to become Christians and, and all that? And they wrestled with it. And they, they came to the conclusion at the end that this is what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Well, we're looking for that. What, what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us is we're wrestling with this issue. It's an ongoing thing. It's, um, but see, so here's the thing. We're, we're wrestling with it. We're not ready. At some point, we're going to have a sermon series that will address LGBTQ issues and everything pertaining to sex. Um, but we're not ready for that yet. But the leadership of Woodland Hills Church thought that it'd be good to update, at least give an update on, on kind of where we're at in processing this. And that was the second preliminary word that I was supposed to. I don't know what we were thinking when we thought, you can't make a preliminary word out of this. <laughs> this is it's too big. So, so they, they thought we should give an update. And while we don't have all the answers, haven't crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, and all that kind of stuff, uh, there's some principles that I've kind of solidified as we've been processing this. And so I want to share these principles, four of them. Uh, that I, I think kind of reframe the issue and, and, and kind of give us a compass, uh, us in, 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 in a certain direction. So, four principles. Principle number one. I, I would call this the speck and log principle. Actually, they're not all principles or kind of just teachings, but whatever. So, the speck and log principle comes out of Jesus' teaching in Matthew, 5, Matthew 7, where he says, uh, 
don't go out trying to pick out a dust particle in your neighbor's eye or a speck in your neighbor's eye uh, until you first take out the log in your own eyes. What Jesus is saying there is that whatever speck you think you see in another person's eyes, whatever fault, whatever shortcoming, whatever sin, whatever you think you see, before you start to criticize that or go after that, look at your own log. That was pretty clever, wasn't it? Look at the, look at the log in your own eye. Of course, you can't look at the log in your own, own eye because the log's in the way. But what he's saying is consider, you, you want to go after a dust particle, well, you've got a log which consists of about a million dust particles. So consider your stuff a million times worse than whatever you think you see in another person's life. It's a prescription for absolute humility. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 1. He says, uh, verse 15, here's a saying that is worthy of full acceptance. Everyone should accept this saying. And here it is. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's the saying. So Paul is saying, we all should be considering ourselves the worst of sinners. Now, he's not recommending that we go into this false humility where, you know, you try to think, oh, there's nothing good about me. I'm altogether disgusting. I'm altogether future. There's not one, you know, and we think we're glorifying God by slamming ourselves. But he's not going after that. He's just really going after our addiction to judgment, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to free us from that, he says, go the opposite way. Instead of thinking you stand above somebody, always stand underneath them. If you're the worst of sinners, you can't look down on anybody. <laughs> you can only look up. Think about that. Go and look up. So, so and this is why, by the way, that the New Testament has such a strong teaching on against judgment. Don't judge, Jesus says in that same passage, Matthew 7. Don't judge or you'll be judged. The judgment that you give is the judgment you're going to get. If you don't want to be judged, then abstain from judgment. James tells us in James 4 that, that uh, the person who judges another is playing God. You're playing, because that's God's prerogative to judge. It's not ours. Our job is to love, leave all judgment to God. That's why we always teach around here that unless someone's invited you in on their life uh, to help them walk out the kingdom and to offer your opinions on things to help them, unless that is the case, we're only allowed to have one opinion about people. Because it's really it's the only thing we really know about them. And that is, like Paul said, one died for all, therefore all have died. Jesus thought they were worth dying for. They have unsurpassable worth. They're creations of God, made in the image of God, and God is willing to pay an unsurpassable price for them, which means that they have unsurpassable worth. That's the opinion that we should have. I don't care if you're LGBTQ plus or whatever. The most important thing about you is that you have unsurpassable worth. You're loved with an everlasting love by a God who couldn't love you more. His very being is love and it's turned towards you. That's what it looks like to, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Whatever opinions you have about what you think you see in another person that's, that over the, you prove or disapprove, whatever, set that all aside, they're altogether irrelevant. What matters is that you as a disciple of Jesus Christ have an obligation to agree with God on everything. And God says they have unsurpassable worth and the first act of discipleship is to agree with God about that and then reflect that worth by how you think about them, by how you speak about them, by how you speak to them, by how you treat them. Another way of saying all this is, is to say, as I said last week, that, that in the kingdom, we're a community where we meet at the bottom, not at the top. See, mo mo most groups, social groups, and certainly most churches, you meet at the top. And what I mean by that is simply this. You have a bar, uh, a, a criteria of membership. Uh, and, 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 and the question is, you know, so yeah, the identity is we, we are the people who believe these things. We believe the right things as opposed to the people who believe the wrong, wrong things. And we act righteous as opposed to the people who aren't righteous. And yeah, we sin, but our sins are minor as opposed to other people's sins that are major. Whatever the group is, there's an identity there. And the question is, do you qualify? 
Are you good enough to join that group? That's how most social groups operate. They come from a position of superiority. But see, we're to be a community where each one of us thinks of ourselves as the worst of sinners. Uh, we're to be a community in which we uh, can only look up. We're never allowed to look down on people. We're a community in which all judgments and all comparisons and all evaluations and all contests are to be done away with completely. And see, for a community like that, if, if, if that really is who we are, then there is no bar that people have to mat- meet before they can join us. No, we always say that the kingdom isn't us without a them. Uh, it's, a, it's got a center, but we, no one's policing the parameter. Because <laughs> we're not in a position to police the parameter. Who's in, who's out, or whatever. No. We just say, we're marching this way. If you want to march with us, come along. And we work out the details as we're walking. That's the kingdom of God. And see, that just reframes everything. The usness of the kingdom is, it, it starts and we, 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 we admit our brokenness. We meet at the bottom. We're broken. We're sinners. We're s- saved by grace. Uh, we, we don't merit this. No, it's God's good favor, God's grace that comes and meets us where we're at, at the bottom. We meet in our brokenness. And God meets us in this, our brokenness and by his transforming grace, he matures us and grows us till eventually, someday we'll be at the top. And the top is Christ-likeness. We'll see him as he is, for we shall be like him. First John 3. But we start at the bottom. And so we're the broken club. And anyone who wants to admit that they're broken can join this club. In fact, we can see you an insider, and part of it even if you don't. So we throw away all claims to righteousness and whatever, and we meet at the bottom. Principle number one, that's the speck and log uh, principle. Principle number two. People are not policies. If, we, if, if we're to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us, it means you put people before policies because the reality is this. People are not labels. People are not categories. People are, can't be filed into this or that. People aren't policies and people aren't programs. Every individual that God creates is a one-of-a-kind individual, a sui generis individual. And to love that person is to love them in that radical uniqueness that God created them with. You see, that's exactly what can't happen if you're putting people in policies and in categories, or you're a this, or you're a that. Well, now you're loving a this or a loving a that. You're not loving the person. The person can't be reduced to a this or a that. The person stands unique. And to love them is to love them in that uniqueness. If you're going to love individuals and treat them as individuals, you can't have a one-size-fits-all policy that's supposed to apply equally to everybody in that category. It doesn't work like that. Now, this doesn't mean that truth is relative. Some people might be worried about that. I, I, I don't think truth is relative. I think there's right, there's wrong. I think there's true, there's false. But see, how truth applies to a person's life depends on a whole history of their living, on, on a multitude of variables. And you've got to know a person very well and get to love a person very deeply to know all those variables so you can have some wisdom about how truth applies in their life. What's, what does God want to work on? But, you know, God doesn't work on everything at once. He doesn't do that with you, so why would you think he does it with other people? No, there's a process that we're involved in. We're all in process on this. And to know what God wants to go after or what God would allow, you've got to have a lot of wisdom. It takes deep community to do that. And that's why we say that if you're not invited in on that relationship, then, then you're only allowed one opinion, unsurpassable worth. You have to be invited in 
to have that kind of wisdom. Now, some people think, I know some Christians think that determining what God's will is for a person's life is as easy as finding a Bible verse and seeing if their life lines up with it. And if it doesn't, then you can just clobber them over the head with that Bible verse. Oh, you're one of those kind of people. Well, thus says the Lord, bam! Pop them over the head with it. See, Christians who do that, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. But they don't realize how completely arbitrary and selective and conditioned their, their use of the Bible is. Uh, they'll, they'll, they're trained to look at the Bible this way. You got your three verses that you're going to go after gay people with. Bop them over the head with that. Your interpretation of those three verses. But completely overlook all the passages that talk about don't slander and don't gossip and don't judge people. Uh, and get rid of greed and don't be involved in idolatry all over the place. And yet, Christians tend to minimize that, wink at that. Those are minor things. Uh, We minimize our stuff and maximize other people's stuff when in fact the Bible maximizes the stuff that we minimize. It's not, look, if you want to clobber anyone with the Bible, clobber yourself. Because you got the log. And so go ahead and beat yourself with it. Leave other people alone. Uh, the truth is, the truth is you've got to know a person very well and, and love them deeply to have any kind of wisdom about their life, how it fits in their life. Uh, you can do a lot of damage bulldozing into a life, thinking you know what the person needs and start blabbering about stuff. You, you don't know. And as I said, if you're not invited into that kind of covenantal relationship, one opinion, and that's that they have unsurpassable worth. So people are not policies. Third, Everybody needs community, kingdom community. Um, here's the thing. We're so individualistic in, in, in America, in Western culture in, in, in general, that we assume that my business is simply my business, no one else's. And so when it comes to issues of ethics or what would be right for me, or we think I will decide that and I don't need anyone to poke their nose into my business. But see, the kingdom is all about community. Yes, we're individuals. And we get to have privacy, but our lives are to be shared and to be open. We're to be people who walk in the light. It doesn't mean you air your dirty laundry before everybody, but we all need some people, maybe just a few, but who, who know us good enough to know when something's going wrong, who care about us, who love us, who are there to support us, who we can process with. And see, the Lord works through community to help people discern the path forward, what would be right for us. And so we really believe that all these kind of issues, dealing with orientation, could be dealing with your finances, could be dealing with a habit you're trying to kick, whatever. Those are the things that should be worked out in covenantal communities. In fact, everything that's written in the New Testament presupposes that the people are in a covenantal community. Uh, they, they met in each other's houses. They didn't have big churches like this. They met in houses. And they knew each other. They, they often would get together every morning. And, and they, they shared life. Uh, and when you share life together, well, then you get to know one another. And, and now you can have some insight into people's lives. That's where all this should be worked out. Not in a policy. One size fits all. No, we're, there's a community surrounding individuals. And together, you walk out this in love to, with one another. And then the fourth principle, which kind of sums up everything. As we've been hashing this out, here's our things, a lot of things we don't know, but here's some things we really think we do know. We're planting our, our Ebenezer here, our flag in the ground. These are principles we stand by. The fourth one is we, we, we seek to discern Jesus' third way approach. Not just to LGBTQ issues, but to all issues. 
Jesus, what's fascinating about his ministry was people were always trying to get him to buy into the binary options of the culture. Jesus, which one's right? This one or that one? Uh, yes or no? Do we pay taxes or not? Yes or no? And Jesus always found a way to turn the questions back on them. He says, I, I, I'm not here to answer those kind of questions. Here's what I'm, I want to address. And, and he showed a third way. Your binary options are not adequate to capture the truth, is what he's saying. Our job is to have a distinct kingdom perspective in all that we do. Not let the culture set the agenda, and not even let the church tradition set the agenda. I, I, we need to honor the church tradition. I, I, I think that it's ridiculous to think that you can ignore the wisdom of the past as you're going forward, but at the same time, when it comes to LGBTQ issues, the church doesn't have a stellar record on this. In fact, the church has more often than not scapegoated people who didn't fit into the, their norm, the church's norm, and has, did not show Christ-like love to them, often, in fact, persecuted them. Um, no, so we don't want the culture to set the agenda or even the church tradition to set the agenda. We're, we're, we're just taking our Bibles and going to the Lord and wrestling with this to get what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This third way kind of perspective. And see, once you don't let the culture set the agenda, now you're in a position where you can actually hear what the Lord may be saying to you. Now you're in a position where you're not putting God in a box and, and forcing God only to talk the kind of language that, that you would agree with. So it's like this. If you're really sold out on the right end of things, the, the, the right wing of, of the culture wars, or if you're sold out on the left wing of culture wars, well then, everyone thinks that God agrees with them, right? God's on our side. And so people on the right, they're not going to be open to hearing God say anything that might sound like it could re remotely sound like it's coming from the left. And the people on the left can't he hear God. If God's going to say anything, it's going to sound remotely like the right. So God can only speak the language that you agree with. Now, there's something wrong if in your prayer life, God can only agree with you. <laughs> At that point, if you know anything about the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, it's that he's a surprising God. He doesn't fit into our normal categories. And so we should expect that God sometimes maybe will surprise us. I didn't see that coming. Um, but you can't do that as long as you're buying into the options that the culture gives. Is it this one or this one? And really this brings us back to this whole thing about uh, loving people uh, and putting people before policies. Because if you have a policy, here's our stance on this category. Well, See, you've already decided. You don't even need to pray about it now, do you? You've got your policy. It's right there. One size fits all. Uh, no need to pray about how it applies. No, you've already got it. And that's just, that's, we need to let God be God. Would you agree with that? Let God be God. And, and let's admit that we don't know everything. And let's admit that we're fallible human beings. Let, 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 let's meet at the bottom, okay, and confess that, that we're, we're all broken. We're all broken. And uh, um, we need to have an open mindset when it comes to seeking God's will about things. Be open to the Spirit leading this one-of-a-kind individual. See, that's why it's gotta be, you got to hear the Spirit. This person is an individual. Radically unique. And our job is to love them as an individual. And so to know, God, what is your will for this individual? You can't just say, well, they're one of those. We have a policy on that. No. Acts 15. Wrestle with it. And then discern what seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Never reduce a person to a this or a that. They are utterly unique. 
and they have unsurpassable worth and are priceless as they are in their individuality. So remember the speck and log principle. People are not policies. We all need covenant community and discern Jesus' third way approach. And actually, I think if we do the first three, if we hold fast to those first three principles, I think we're, we've gone a long way down the road on, on attaining a unique Jesus kind of perspective because those first three principles kind of reframe the whole thing. It's no longer a question of, are you worthy to join us? Now, we, we've turned that on its head. None of us are worthy. We're all broken. Let's start with that. So I know this leaves a lot of unanswered questions. People thinking like, what about this verse? Or what about that verse? And whatever. And, and there'll come a time when we're going to address all that. We'll have an open Q&A. And Paul Eddie will be up here. He's the expert. And he'll answer every question you've ever had about anything pertaining to sex. How do you like that, Paul? No pressure. No pressure. But uh, right now, we, 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 we're in process. And we've got to be okay with that. Acts 15 is about a process. And actually, I think the process will probably... At some point, we'll invite the whole congregation to wrestle with this. Um, and I actually could get another principle here if I wanted to, a fifth one, and that would be, I think God cares more about how we go about processing this than the conclusion we come to. Uh, if, if we can't process tough issues in love and with respect and openness, uh, then it doesn't matter what conclusion we come to, we've already lost. First uh, Corinthians 16 uh, four, let everything that you do be done in love. Everything be done in love, including processing tough issues. I, I, I'll just say this. Um, I'll end with this. If, if you're, if you identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, or anything else, uh, I first want to apologize to you as, as a, I, I, I want to represent the church. Um, not just Woodland Hills, but the church in general. And, and I want to ask for your forgiveness on behalf of the church because the church has historically not uh, been Christ to you, has not loved you the way Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Uh, the church has often scapegoated people who didn't fit into the normative uh, paradigm and, and uh, was anything but Christ-like towards them, often persecuting them, putting them to death. And for that, I am sorry. Uh, and all we can do is just pledge that we want it to be different here. We don't, we don't want to carry on that tradition. Uh, I want you to know that if you're LGBTQ or any other letter, you are loved with an unsurpassable love exactly as you are. And you are not less than anyone else uh, at all. We're all broken. We're all broken. And we, no, but no one's got any interest around here on, on, in saying who's more broken than who. Or what variety of brokenness, uh, you know, is worse than the other kind of brokenness. No. You're broken. That's all there is. So if you would like to join the broken club, we would embrace you full arms. Uh, maybe some people think, well, I don't think my, my sexuality is broken. But see, here's the thing. Go back to the passage where Jesus says, if you look on a person to lust after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? You're broken. We're all broken. There's more brokenness under... Heterosexual, heterosexuality than there's in any other letter. Okay? I'm heterosexual, I'm straight, but I'm broken. We're all broken. Can we meet there? And then we'll together discern God's spirit as we walk forward on this. And so there's the update. There's the update. And um, yeah, more, more will be coming. Uh, 
before I end in prayer, I'll, I've got three announcements, right, Mary? Got, first, the, I have to remember to tell you about the, the muse, uh, MuseCast on Tuesdays, where they go over the sermons and talk about it, and you can get more into it that way. Uh, we also have our gathering groups. We encourage folks to be participating in those uh, online, and those are going to continue even after we reopen. And if you could use prayer for any matter, we need to talk to somebody for any matter, um, please take advantage of our, our uh, uh, prayer teams that are available. Um, they would love to, to, to minister to you. Let, let me uh, close in this prayer. Lord, I thank you, God, that, that um, what you did on the cross was for everybody, and it changed everything about everyone. I thank you, God, that we can stand in that victory and look at the world through the lens of that victory, look at the world through the lens of that love. I pray, Lord God, for this congregation as we continue to go forward this week with this Derek Shelvin trial. Lord, um, I pray for the city. Keep calm. Help people abstain from violence. Most of all, bring justice. And Lord, as we talk about our sexuality, uh, we just pray, Lord God, that we would be a community. We keep growing, learning to love together, to be a community that discerns your will, that loves radically, outrageously, maybe even scandalously, because that's the way that you loved. Thank you for calling us, equipping us, and empowering us to be your people. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Oh, come on, you do a lot more than that. Come on. All God's people said. Yeah, there you go. God bless you guys. See you next week.